0: Welcome to Covalent Conversations. Today we'll be joined by Professor Michele Galicia. Professor Galicia is an assistant professor at the Department of Chemical Biological Materials Engineering at the University of Oklahoma. Professor Galicia earned his PhD in chemical engineering from the University of Bologna in 2010 and completed his postdoctoral training at the University of Naples. He then moved to the US to UT Austin to work as a research associate with Professors Don Paul and Benny Freeman prior to starting his faculty appointment in 2017. Professor Galicia's research program aims to combine fundamental principles of polymer chemistry, polymer physics, thermodynamics, and transport phenomena to design, synthesize, and understand novel membrane materials for gas, vapor, and liquid separations that exhibit better selectivity and enhance resistance to physical aging and plasticization. His group is contributing to unveil the fundamental mechanism of solvent transport in organic solvent nanofiltration and Organic Solvent Reverse Osmosis Dense Polymer Membranes. Moreover, his group is now investigating the fundamentally new concept of configurational free volume in gas and liquid separation membranes. Professor Galicia has received a number of awards, including the NSF Career Award, the 2021 Class of Influential Researchers by INEC Research, the ACS PRF New Doctoral Investigator, and the OU Chemical Engineering Outstanding Professor Award Back to back in 2021 and 2022, the Rising Star Membrane Science Award in 2018 from the journal Frontiers in Polymer Chemistry uh, by Nature Publishing Group. He also serves as associate editor of the Journal of Polymer Engineering since 2018, and since 2021 is a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Membrane Science. So we're in for a real treat today, and, and we'll be talking about uh, mentorship along with navigating faculty positions before concluding with uh, a discussion of one of uh, professor Galicia's papers on organic solvent nanofiltration and organic solvent reverse osmosis membranes. Uh, and so with that, uh,
1: we'll, we'll get into it.
2: Welcome to the show, Michele. Thank you for joining
0: us today. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Rahul. I'm doing very well. And uh, thank you for having me here. This is my, uh, my pleasure.
2: Yeah, we're we're happy to have you on the show as well. So, I think before we we delve into some of the main topics today, uh, we plan to talk a little bit about mentorship uh, in academia and and some nice uh, science for dessert about uh, uh, organic solvent nanofiltration and, and RO. Uh, before we do that, I think it's nice to just have a soft intro and talk a little bit about yourself in terms of your background and journey. Uh, so, I guess what. What interested you in in science uh, at a young age? Um, growing up where, where you grew up?
1: Yeah. Well, you know. Um... It's uh, that is probably the most difficult question to address uh, because I uh, I think uh, I mean I, I don't think I can individuate a moment when uh, I got interested in that or a specific episode that uh, uh, got me into science and education or so uh, you know it was really a. An interest that uh, that came with me, you know, since the early stages when I was back in Europe, because I was was born there, uh, so I was raised in a completely different, uh, you know, reality uh, compared to where I am now. Um, i can tell you i can tell you the first memory that i have about that process i was about 10 years old and um, at that time uh, all the students graduating from the elementary school had to take the, the national examination before they could go to the middle school now this is no longer no longer required i think but at the time it was and, uh, you know, you had to uh, put together a composition, a team, you know, to explain a little bit to what you want to do, who you want to be. And I clearly remember that I wrote there that I want to be a scientist. I want to be involved in science and education. You know, I was about 10 years old also at the end of the elementary school. That is the first moment. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, I have always been interested in understanding the reason of the uh, natural phenomena. This is what got me into science. You know, every time something happens, you know, uh, I ask myself why that happens. Uh, For example, when I, you know, looking at the coffee, the coffee maker, you know, why, why, you know, it can extract caffeine and make the coffee. How can that work? What is the physical principle behind that? you know, that is, that is basically what fascinated me since the early days. And then I have to say that what I wrote in that composition was prophetic because, you know, that happened some, somehow a few years later. Yeah. Wow.
2: That's that's amazing. That's, uh, it's fun how it's an everyday life example, like making coffee that yeah, you know, obviously, will happen a lot in, in Italy, for example. Uh, exactly. So <laughs> that's, that's fun. So, and, and that almost sounds like engineering is on the mindset as well uh, at it's an early age. So, I, I guess
1: always there, always there with us.
2: Yeah. <laughs> nice. So, you know, now you have this this interest in science even at you know age ten after elementary school. So, what what led you to look at chemical engineering specifically, and, and then eventually wanting to be in, in academia and
1: research beyond that? Yeah, you know, uh, this is much easier for me to answer. <laughs> uh, well, you know, chemical engineering for me, uh, and I did not change idea on that, represents really the perfect uh, the perfect match. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it gives you a very, very general preparation on fundamental science that can be chemistry, that can be physics. Uh, when I was in the program there, you know, I was in the five years program. I was taking classes from mechanical engineering, civil engineering, um, electrical engineering as well, uh, mathematics. You know, we took um, uh, uh, mathematical, uh, mathematical physics um, and uh, and in general, in general, you know, I, I was uh, I was impressed by. Uh, uh, on how chemical engineering can really provide a very good general preparation on fundamental science, Hmm. uh, on the mathematical formulation of the general scientific problem, but with an open eye to the applications. And this is what I still believe today. You know, Mm -hmm. I always tell prospective students that chemistry is probably one of the most versatile, one of the most flexible problems Mm -hmm. within engineering. You know, I am am firmly convinced about that, and that was uh, that led me to uh, to to decide for chemical engineering. Now, how I got involved in an academic career that is an interesting story and there i have really in mind all the all the steps Hmm. and everything seriously started when i was in my first semester at the college Um, and i was taking a general chemistry class the teacher uh, was uh, a very good polymer chemist he was used to synthesize polymers and one day he told us, first semester in the college, uh, well, guys, uh, f- more than 50% of your peers in the U.S., they work in uh, polymer-related fields. And so you should really think about that. You know, you should reflect on that. And I have to be honest, that really um, made me a little bit curious, you know. Um, okay, maybe these polymers is something that I have to look at, you know. Uh, and then, you know, the, I was a freshman. I was a freshman. Very, very impressionable. <laughs> exactly. You know, with all the limitations that this implies, <laughs> you know. Then, actually, something happened when I was a junior. I was taking my earliest possible transport class. Mm-hmm. I was uh, introduced to rheology and, in particular, to polymer rheology. And uh, frankly, I got, um, I got shocked when I saw, you know, these very peculiar behavior that polymers may have. They are strongly non-Newtonian. They have a very curious rheological behavior. Um, fell in love with that. Uh, and since I was looking for a topic for my final project, for my final dissertation, and I was also looking uh, for you know, possible opportunity for undergrad research. I contacted a professor, I went to his office. I was aware that he was somewhere, somehow involved in rheology. And he told me, well, I was involved in rheology. I did research in rheology 30 years ago, but uh, I was in another university. Now I moved here, I do something different. I don't do momentum transferring polymers, but I do mass transferring mm. polymers. Could you be interested in this? Would you like to be involved? You know, in case I may have a few projects. Okay. So, uh, the day after I went to the university library, I did not have internet at home. I did not have internet on my phone. Uh, I reserved the internet room in, um, at the university, so uh, with a very old computer, you know, it was there it was uh, it was not in the US, um, and I started downloading a few papers on diffusion in polymers, membrane separations. The first thing first that I saw is that uh, most of these papers, um, you know, had uh, three names: Benny Freeman, Don Paul, Bill Carus. Mm-hmm. And frankly, Raul, uh at that time, I could not believe that a few years later, something would happen. I uh, could not believe that. That was far beyond my imagination at that time. I started reading through. Uh, and... Uh, I was really mesmerized. I was frankly, frankly shocked when I realized that it is possible to separate chemicals with a piece of plastic.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I was taught that we separate chemicals by distillation. I was taught yep. that we do, you know, different. Yeah.
2: Different I can't of feel of it forever, right? The little uh, exactly. diagrams. That's
1: yes, beautiful. Yes. Separations. Completely, completely, you know, I, that, that was, you know, mm-hmm. beyond my imagination. I immediately... I immediately decided, you know, believe me, in that moment, I decided what my life will be. This is what I want to do. And I will never, you know, depart from, from this. And then, you know, I started a PhD, then, you no, know, went to Naples um, for a postdoc. Um, and then, uh, then uh, after that, uh, you know, that experience in Naples was really crucial for me. Uh, was really important. Without Naples, I could not come to the US. I could not come to the UT Austin, uh, you know, uh, and making possible for me, you know, working with Benny Freeman and Don Paul, and uh, and then, uh, and then the history is probably a little bit more uh, a little bit more known. And then basically that uh, that experience uh, um brought me, uh, you know, where I am now and doing what i am doing now so that is basically the story
2: yeah that's that's uh beautiful to to see it's a very remarkable story it's cool to see you had very diverse classes in engineering that weren't just you know specific on one thing and then you had access to professors who, who were doing research and a topic that wasn't exactly what you had thought initially but something that still has hammered you and was exciting and then now you go through this whole career path that you've, you've been on for quite some time now. And it's, uh, uh, it's impressive to see that. So that's, that's amazing. And I guess this is a great time for us now to transition to the, one of the topics is you know on your own journey, you probably had a number of mentors who helped you a lot uh, you know, as, you, as, you, as you've made it through academia. So you know, maybe to, to start off, who were some of the important mentors in your journey? I, I know at least two of them, uh, but I'm sure there were many more.
1: Well, this is a very easy question. You know, very easy question that uh, you know could uh, could deserve uh, just uh, two names, yeah. or probably you know could deserve uh, ten hours of discussion yeah. because you know here we really enter in something that is not just professional, mm-hmm. but really touches you know personal personal emotions every single time. Obviously, oh. Benny Friedman and Ulla, I cannot. I mean, Benny Freeman, Don Paul, they, they, they did something that is special. They acted not on me just as a professional, but uh, as a person. They had an impact, a personal, a personal impact on me. You know, I, I, I will never forget, you know, the long conversation with Don, you know, sitting, you know, in the backyard of his house. Many times, I will never forget, you know, the conversations with with Benny, you know, the advices that they gave me, but not just professionally. So, you know, mentors are important. Mentors are important not just if you want to go to the academy. Mentors are important whatever you want to do. Uh, if you want to get a degree, an academic degree, you just need good mentors because without mentors... And without a good mentorship, you don't go, uh, you don't go anywhere. You really need these excellent examples. Obviously, you know, I cannot, uh, you know, I have to, I have to include in this list the wonderful mentors that I, that uh, I had the privilege to have at the uh, University of Naples back in Italy. Pepe that is now the department, uh, department chair there in chemical engineering. Um, you know Piero Salatino, who was the uh, dean of the college, mm-hmm. Pierluca Maffettone, department chair at that time, Pellegrino Musto, director of research uh, the National Research Council of Italy, Gaetano Guerra, member of the National Academy of the Lincei, mm-hmm. that is the most important, the most prestigious academy there, I had the privilege you know I looking back I really have to be honest with myself to realize that I had the best mentors mm-hmm. in uh, in Texas and at Naples the best mentors that I could have that have really and profoundly shaped me professionally and personally and so yes without them I could not uh, I could not do what I'm doing and you yeah. know everything would be different.
2: Right. Ways. Yeah. It seems like they play a, a very important role in, in shaping, um, you know, your, your fundamental approach to science,
1: Absolutely.
2: uh, your philosophies about academia, how you want to necessarily educate people, how you want to explain things. Uh, you know, obviously i I'm a graduate student with, with Benny Friedman. So we have some of the same philosophies, which is, yes. which is fun. and nice. <laughs> Uh, so it's it's definitely you know very humbling to see some of that um i guess now that you've you've become a more of a mentor yourself and are a professor um have you seen you know some of uh what your advisors and mentors have done for you in your style and where has your approach evolved a little bit since you've become a professor
1: you know obviously uh, sheer you know for sure, this is more complicated and the answer is more articulated. When, uh, when you start uh, an academic position, you no, know, most of the times, I could say 99% of times, you know, that is your first appointment, right? And basically you, you are facing for the first time a new role, uh, a new job that you didn't do before. And so obviously your mentorship, you know, your mentoring style when you start is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, then after three years, after five years, and after 30 years. So it changes because, mm-hmm. you know, when you are a student at postdoc, you know, you are a mentee. And so basically you pick whatever you can pick from your mentor. Then it's time to become a mentor. And so it's time uh, with the success and the mistakes, you know, to, uh, to set uh, the paths for your way to be a mentor. Basically, my idea, my philosophy—that uh, you know, philosophy that I use in mentoring—is that uh, basically the scope of the academia is to produce a human capital. The mm. scope of the academia is not, uh, you know, is not to, to, you know, is not to produce the. Uh, The papers is not to bring the money, is not uh, the awards, is not uh, the citations, is not the publication. I'm not saying that that is not important. Indeed, you will you will realize in one moment that is extremely important. But the papers, citations, awards, they are the byproduct of uh, a more you know, of the most important part of the program. It is mentoring students and generating human capital. Mm-hmm. You know, while we try to educate people and let them become accomplished professionals, accidentally we produce a paper. Accidentally we file a patent. Accidentally we produce a presentation to a conference. And these scholarly these scholarly uh, publications will bring the awards, will bring the recognition, will bring the citations. But the main scope is to create human capital. And this is what I always tell the students in the lab, in the class, you know, postdocs, graduate students, undergrad students in the class and in the lab. We are not here for the papers. We are not here for the for the citations. We are not here for the awards. We are not here for the recognition. We are here to um, make uh, this a better place mm. simply by creating human capital that uh, makes, uh, you know, our community, our country a better one. And accidentally, while we do this, we produce papers, we produce, you know, uh, whatever has a scholarly value. And that is basically the main, the main philosophy. You know, uh, and that is something that really, you know, uh, I really saw, it. I really picked a lot from my mentors mm-hmm. because that is, that is what they did with me. You know, what I ever what I realized, you know, what I didn't know before and what I ever realized doing the job you know, trying, trying, learning the job, this new job, is that uh, you know, people, people, people is different. You know, um, when you are training uh, ten people, twenty people, hundred people, you know, you will find people that are completely different to each other. You know, let's uh, let's consider you start. You know, in the in the fall semester, your academic, your faculty position. Well, you will have a few students in your lab, eventually undergrad students, graduate students, eventually postdocs. And then you will have about 100 students in the classroom. And so you will have more than 100 students, you know. Mm -hmm. So do you believe that the students are all equal, all the same? No. You know, every everybody succeed in a different way. You, you know, what you need to succeed is different from what I need to succeed because we have a different background, we have a different view, and so what a good mentor should do is to help the people uh, pursue their lifetime goals. You know. Uh, We use research, you know, what you can do, what I can do to help you pursue your goals. And so, basically, the mentor is not the person that just sets the rule. So, mentoring does not mean that you have to just enforce, you know, a a series of rules and Everybody that does not follow those rules is out. No, that is not the way it works. The way it works is that, you know, you set a few rules because obviously when you work uh, in collaboration with people, you need some rules so that everything can work smoothly and properly. However, then you have to be flexible. Mm -hmm. As a good membrane, (laughs) you have to exhibit a combination of rigidity and flexibility. (laughs) And so, you know, so that you can guarantee permeability and selectivity. (laughs) So basically, you know, you have to be flexible because people have different goals. Mm -hmm. And so as a mentor, you have to help them achieve their goals in life through research, through education. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, The important is the important part is the student. Should never happen that the student is an instrument for the PI to pursue his goals or her goals. But it's true, the opposite. The PI is a tool that will help the student pursue the goals in life. So what a faculty member is, faculty member and mentor is simply, I say, I always say, a transmission belt between the institutions and the society. So you take uh, resources, you know, federal grants, whatever, you consume some resources uh, that help improve the quality of living that, uh, you know, enhance the literacy of the general public. And this is what every faculty member should do. You know, there is nothing, nothing else, you know. This is what a good mentor, in my opinion, should. That's why when a student says, I work with Professor X. I work for Professor X. I immediately correct him or her. And I say, no, it's Professor X that works with you and works for you and not the opposite Mm. because you are the main part, you know, of the, of the, of the project. Obviously, you know, that's, that is something that I really learned much more during these five years, you know, started. Mm -hmm. Five years ago, you know, fall of 2017. Something that I learned, you know, uh, is that we also we also learn and mentor people leveraging uh, uh, success and failure, and uh, you know, um, and probably you know we we learn from failures, you know, much more than we learn from success, you know, because sometimes you know if you succeed, uh, you know it the first, or the second, the third time, you believe that to succeed, you have to do always the same thing.
2: And yeah, it's sufferance. become superstitious almost.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you need also to fail. We need to fail. Students need to fail sometimes. Indeed, you know, fail can be read as... A, First attempt in learning, you know, hmm. first attempt in learning, you know, that is, and that is valuable in our group. And I, I know in many other groups, we value this. This is what, uh, you know, a good mentor should do, you know, yeah. putting himself, putting yourself to the service of the students.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you really hit the nail on the head, I think, about what the career really is about. Um, really. To me, you can always sum it up with with education and, and teaching at various levels, right? It's a career about service, and uh, it's it's interesting to see you're you really the students are the product; they're they're part of your part of your product, your your service uh, to educate them and train them the right way. And you know, it seems like some people get a conception about academia that it's about uh, focusing on on research advancement, uh, but I, I see it more as you're trying to teach people in the literature or people in other fields, you know, how to understand things. And it's not, you know, about your achievements per se, but it's about helping people
1: with communication. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that is an important, you know, that, that is extremely important. The fact that, uh, you know, obviously, you want to make an impact. Obviously, you want to advance the science. But uh, you have to train the people to do so. Mm. You know, if you don't train the people, there is no science. There is no advancement. And, you know, and you have to train, train uh, treat them well and teach something that, you know, um, teach something. And this is the following. And here I want to touch, you know, a very delicate topic. Uh, and I want to, you know... Um, I want to say something. You know, it's, it's sometimes we have the impression that in the academia today to be successful, you have to do everything by yourself. You have to, to, you know, um, to completely do the entire cycle of research Mm -hmm. by yourself. That is absolutely, totally, undoubtedly wrong and this is a misconception that we have to eradicate mm-hmm. because it's damaging the academic tissue as a, a you know, in, in a very dramatic way. In the sense that, uh, you know, we we should be, you know, everybody should be familiar with the concept of uh, convergence. Convergence is when people work together multidisciplinarity, but convergence is something more, is more than multidisciplinary, is when people work together and they put together efforts to succeed, to solve an important problem while educating students. And so, you know, we have to eradicate the idea that if you cannot do everything by yourself, everything in your group, you fail, you are not good, or you are not uh, suitable, you are not uh, viable, that is totally, completely, and doubly fake. And this ideology has to be eradicated from from our academic system, because we have to educate people. You know, uh, research advancement comes if people are educated well. And the people are educated well if they have mentors, and if they if these mentors put these people put these mentees in contact with um, people uh, with a different background. You know, uh, the engineer that works with a chemist, with the physicists, with the mathematician, with the biologist, with the medical doctor to solve, uh, you know, practical issues in molecular separations as well as in other areas that can be healthcare, you know, and any any other kind of, uh, any other area of science, you know. Yes, it's really news. It's really news.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely uh, important. I found even myself, it seems like just on the technical side of things, if you realize that, you know, it's important to work on a team with people with different backgrounds, you can solve a lot of really interesting and, and really challenging problems that, yes. you know, frankly, are, are of much more interest in, in research exactly. than things you might try to do on your own and may not, you know, succeed at even doing on your own.
1: Exactly. You know, you, you go, go with the people, I'll go along with the people, and you will go, probably, I don't want to deny this, probably a little bit slower, but you will go far. Yeah. But if you want to go along, you will go faster for a while, but you will not go anywhere. You yeah. know, that is that is something that, uh, that we have to understand. Um, wow. And that's it. It's a very simple. It's a very simple concept. But I think we are still having, you know, some misconceptions. You know, that you have to succeed immediately. You have to succeed. uh, You know, uh, uh, doing everything by yourself. Yeah. Not true. Yeah. Obviously, obviously depends on what you want to do. If you want to do something that is, uh, you know, persistent, something that is, uh, you know, cool science, you have to work with other people mm-hmm. and you have to be open to these collaborations. You know, this is something that I really, I really learned uh, directly, you know, when I started my, um, my postdoc in Naples. you know, there I started working with chemists, with physicists, uh, pharmacists, um, you know, with a variety of people with uh, different background, also in engineering, outside engineering, and I cannot tell enough how much that uh, uh, enriched me as a professional, but as a person, probably even more, mm-hmm. which is, again, important because he's the person, is the human capital that matters. Yeah. And, you know, you can clearly see a person that can work with other people and distinguish a person that can work with other people from a person that cannot work with anybody. You right. know, that, mm-hmm. is, that is And, you know... Looking at this, looking at this, whole oh, we cannot forget to mention that, you know, NSF, for example, today, or other federal, important federal agencies, you know, they, they tend, they tend to support, you know, if you look at, to the website, everything is public, everything is transparent you know most of the funded projects they are multidisciplinary projects Absolutely. or they are convergent projects with multiple KPIs uh, with uh, different expertise uh, the, uh, the engineer the chemist the medical doctor the physicist and so uh, this is uh, this is the reality and uh, we have to really make sure that our mentoring reflects this need this yeah. needs that uh, that, uh, is, that is clearly relevant
2: yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think a lot of these federal agencies are looking at grand challenges that face humanity, and yeah. you know yeah. you can't really solve them unless you have a team that can hit and access all these complicated topics that are surrounding it. It's it's the no. problems that we face today in, in this century are very complicated. Uh, so teams are needed. No, all problems sure. these yes. days. And
1: so it's it's I, a good I, skill yeah.
2: to have. I agree.
1: I agree. You know, you you think Rahul about you know. The problem of uh, thermos selectivity, you know, in mm. materials, you know, we are very familiar with that. But you think about other problems that maybe we are less familiar with, but that uh, you know involve, unfortunately, our, all of us like uh, you know, defeating the cancer, mm. defeating the diabetes. You know, I don't think that you know people can solve this problem alone. No, that's not know that know, people have to collaborate and, you know, to design a better material to provide water, clean water for people in Africa or in, in countries that are in a huge need, mm-hmm. you know, you probably need the collaborative efforts from
2: many yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. From, you know, from fundamental groundwork research to all the way to getting it to be a real thing, you need a lot of different expertise involved. So, yes. It's good. I think it's been been nice. You know, myself, you know, Benny has uh the, the Mwet Center Energy Frontier Research Center. It's funded by the DOE. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a plug for the center, but uh, you know, we we work a lot with people from different uh expertise levels, people who are chemists, people who are more on simulation, and you know, some people who are yes. more polymer physics, people who are membrane separation, people who are environmental engineers. And it's it's been nice and and somewhat gratifying to Learn from them and how they approach problems. Again, I guess it all just exactly. comes back to education and, and teaching and learning in this profession. So, and you know, the process. And
1: you know of- mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know what, Rahul? Now you are collaborating with these people. And, uh, you know, these people, if you decide, for example, to pursue, let's say, a postdoc uh, and then a, an academic career, they will be your collaborators.
0: Mm,
1: yeah. You know, the bonds that you are creating right now they will represent the basis for you, uh, you know, for you to start tomorrow an independent career. You know, basically, in other words, what you are doing now is just a setting, setting the pathway, setting the next pathway. And again, these reflect good mentorship. These reflect good mentorships, you know. Because you are being, putting, you know, in contact with people uh, um, having a different expertise. This is just invaluable, Unvaluable. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I guess this is a good point to transition a little bit. You know, we're, we're talking about how fulfilling this career is and how great it is to be in academia. So maybe you can uh, help me and, and the audience understand more about traversing the academic career. You know, so starting from, you know, you're a PhD to, to postdoc student and you're, you're thinking about an academic career and uh, what, you know, what are the things that are going into your mind when it comes to application preparation, you know, that's, that's stage one. And then eventually you have to interview,
1: let's say. Yeah. yeah. You know, that is uh that is a, um, you know, really, a bottleneck somehow is is you know what you do there really will interfere <laughs> with uh, you know with what happens in the uh, in the subsequent uh, in the subsequent months. Well, I, I would say I would say that uh, you know if I should provide a few characteristics, probably probably your question could be you know what a good application package you know right yeah the camera, which kind of uh, you know information, which kind of uh, characteristics, uh, you know? Because I was talking recently to a, a pool of graduate students about that, you know, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. You know, I would say that uh, you know a good uh, a good application package is like a good proposal. Mm. Tells a story. Tells a story. You know, tells a little bit about you. You know, aligns with what you want to be. So, you know, a good, a good application package is, does not uh, just offer like ten different activities. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do that. Um, that can be disconnected or barely connected to each other, or not really in line with uh, your career goals. Because your career goals will emerge in the cover letter, right? In the cover letter, you say a little bit who you want to be in 10 years, in 15 years. So reading the cover letter, they will get an idea about uh, you know your pathway, who you want to be. Now, when you put together the research part of the application package, make sure that that part is aligned with the story that you mentioned in the uh, cover letter, that really that uh, research project that you are proposing is the car that will drive you exactly to the place where you want to go, where right? you want to be in 10 years, say, tenured professor, working in that area and with these accomplishments. And. The research part should be aligned with this, should not be, you know, completely far away removed from your personal story. So an application package is like a good proposal. Tells a story. It tells a story. Tells a story of you. Tells a story of you based on what you did, what you're doing, and mainly what you want to do as an independent researcher, how you will leverage your experience to become who you want to become. You know, obviously what I believe, you know, uh, some mistakes that you know we may avoid is like proposing too much. As I had mentioned before, you know, you don't want to be the person that uh, says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do that. But, uh, you know, you don't, want, you don't want to be wide you just want to be deep. Mm-hmm. And so you know you propose a couple of activities perhaps three but very deep very well thought very well motivated with a, a rationale behind that with a story and the different projects that you propose they are connected they are connected you know there is a there is a a connection between them. That is the story that is your story is the story that will bring you where you want to be in 10 years. And so, you know, the project two or three should be very deep and very well connected to each other. Like the faces, the two faces of a coin that, uh, you know, represent two faces, but two faces of the same object and they're not completely different stories. Uh, so that is I think what makes uh, you know what makes uh, uh, an application package a good one obviously that will reflect i cannot deny ideas that will reflect also your your you know the the mentoring that you received you know uh, you know uh, there there you will see if a person has been very well mentored you know the the proposal will reflect that uh, in a variety of ways. In the way you communicate, in the way you know you tell your story, because you have to tell the story. You know, it has to be compelling. You know, people have to enjoy reading it for one hour. You know, it has to tell story of you. Yeah, what that's did, what I'm doing. What I will be.
2: It's it's very interesting. So one piece of advice I've gotten before is. Uh, as you're thinking about an academic career, you kind of want to have about one sentence that describes what you want your, yes. you know, domain or expertise to be, and it's almost like you're you're telling the search committee, this is what my expertise will be or is, and for yes. the exhibits that will. Lead me to that expertise, or where I'll be in ten years, like you're saying. So it's yeah. so it sounds like you know
1: consistent with what you're saying. That is, that is exactly the point, Raquel. Especially because you know when you interview, obviously, then things may go differently from what you expect. You know, for a variety of reasons. But you know, the main point is that you want to be you don't want to be the person that uh, promises. You want to be the person that will make that happen. And then you have to make that happen. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because then obviously you will be in trouble if you promise 10 things and then nothing of that happens. You know, you want to be just, uh, you know, you want to help yourself, you know, being very deep so that, uh, you know, basically you can create before starting the conditions for you to succeed. Because at the end of the story, some people will get an idea in a few moments, right? You don't need to talk for hours. You don't need to talk for for 30 minutes. You don't need to talk for 15 minutes. As you mentioned, it is sufficient one sentence. And probably it is sufficient to, to talk for one minute. And you will give, you know, an impression. You will give an idea about your view, about what you want to be. You will tell basically, you will tell basically people this, your story. And to tell your story takes one minute. You know, obviously, you know, it will take a little bit more because you have provide a little bit of details. Obviously, you know, the chalk talk, you know, will, oh, will be a little bit longer than one minute. But you know, in the first minute, you want to provide you know the idea about who you are. You are the person that will make this happen, and you provide you know a very um, a very quantitative measurement that you will succeed. I provide the proof that I will succeed because you know uh, I know that uh, a you know b a implies b b implies c and so this provides strong support to the fact that my idea will work that my idea will be, will be the winning one
2: yeah definitely so you know let's let's say you've made this the strong application package and you've told a, a nice story there and and now you're fortunate enough to get an interview or maybe more than more than one interview you know what's what's that process like you know on on you know uh, the applicant side of things, obviously. Um, uh, you have to prepare, I guess, a research seminar and then the chalk talk. So, we maybe talk a little bit
1: about what that's like and, and how yeah. that process goes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that is once uh, normally, normally I have to say that before you get there, before, you know, submitting, you know, between submitting the application and, you know, going there for an on site interview. You will, uh, you will have several contacts with the people, you know, via Zoom, via Skype, uh, at the AICH meeting. They will be looking at you. They will be, they will be looking at you. Maybe when you don't know, they will sit uh, in the room, uh, you know, listening to your presentation. And, you know, they want to see the way you communicate, uh, you know, your, your, your project, and so that will be the first step, actually, eventually a remote interview, and then eventually you are fortunate enough and you get an on-site interview, right? When you go there, uh, normally um, you have to give a couple of uh, seminars, uh, the, the interview normally uh, lasts a couple of days, uh, is couple of days, three days sometimes, you know. Um, first of all, you know, in the, in the, in the list of things to do, there is the research seminar that is open to everybody that is interested, faculty members, students, graduate, undergrad, postdocs, staff, whoever can come and sit from other departments and they can ask questions and they will assess, you know, your capability to talk about science. That is the story of what you did, what you did eh, as a student, as a postdoc. Then, uh, after a few minutes, you know, eventually after a sip of water, you know, after you know, uh, you know, a uh, little bit of rest, fifteen minutes or so, the second part will start and is the so-called chalk talk. Despite what the name suggests, they is not. At the, the whiteboard with the real chalk, but is on PowerPoint as usual. That is open just to the faculty member in your department. Uh, because, you know, that is a very sensitive topic. That is your research. And so that is a sensitive topic. Uh, what you want to do. That is the story, the story that you tell. This is what I want to be. Now you explain that you are the person that will make that happen, that you you will explain how you will distinguish from your advisor. This is something that we did not mention before, and we want to make a make-up now. How will you differentiate from your advisor? Because your advisor will be a very well-established person when you start. So how will you be different from him, from her? Uh, why will be different? What uh, what uh, will distinguish you as an independent researcher? That will come out in the chalk talk. And in my opinion, you basically are. Uh, you know that is the most important part. That is the most important part is in the chalk talk that uh, that you basically can uh, determine. You know what your future will be. Uh, you know eventually, in, with, with, with that department. Right. So, basically, um, during the CHALK talk, normally the talk will be very informal, you will be interrupted, they will ask you questions about how to, you know, how will you do this, how will you do that, can you please provide more details, why not, how many students you need to do this, do you need a postdoc to do that, which kind of facility you need to do this, also, these kind of questions can come up. More in general, will be you know technical questions about the science behind what you want to do that will assess the feasibility. Uh, you have to demonstrate that you know also the likelihood of success is quantifiable. You know. Obviously, there is also another step during the interview, and is basically that you will meet one by one all of the faculty members. So, it's 30 minutes a slot, and you will, need, you will be meeting them one by one. Mm. And uh, that will be a very formal, very friendly uh, meeting. Um, well, obviously, you have to, uh, have to be very professional, mm. and you have to be prepared eventually to talk not about just your research, but also their research, mm. because well, sometimes collaborations start with the future colleagues may start there may start, uh, you know, in, uh, during this kind of a one-to-one meeting. Then there will be eventually a facility, you know, a visit, a visit to the facilities so that you can see the environment. You will have eventually lunch with graduate students, which is what happened to me. Nice. You know, uh, lunch with graduate students. And somehow graduate students will have also, not always, but they will have a vote. So they will participate to the selection. They will be. They will be. Um, you know, their their opinion will play a role. Let's say, uh, and that is also useful for you to understand a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, the environment, uh, the collegial environment, and that is you know something that you want to also show that you are collegial, that you are flexible, uh, because as we mentioned before, you have to be a flexible mentor. So, if you are very rigid, if you are not collegial, you are going not to be co- collegial with your colleagues, but also with the students. And this would be a problem, right? So, um, this is basically what happens during the on-site interview that basically lasts a couple of days, two days and a half, um, and it is pretty much. And then, obviously, um, the rest of the story is a story that uh, develops uh, remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, you know, you will hear something, uh, and then, basically, this will, um, this will bring to more development, let's say. Right. right.
2: Yeah, that sounds, uh, sounds like a very intense and uh, important
1: process. <laughs> you really need a bottle of water because it will yeah. take a lot. Yeah,
2: I I can imagine you would lose your voice pretty fast. You'd be yeah. having a lot of conversations with a lot of people, and uh, it's <laughs> yeah, definitely you have to be on the entire time, which is which is different than anything you've probably ever been exposed to as a as a PhD student or postdoc
1: or whatever you've done before. It's it's totally different. It's different, especially because there you don't have anyone that can uh, you know protect you or that can. Uh, You know help you help you out you are you are alone and you you have to demonstrate that you can work you know independently you know that you can that you can can do things on your own so yes you know it's it's for sure intensive especially from the emotional point of view um but i i do have good memories of that time looking back you know it's you have good memories.
2: Sounds like every year you're further away. More and more you look back at it fondly.
1: <laughs> you know, at the end of the story, you, you, you learn, you understand, you figure out that you have learned. Mm. Uh, you know, in the success, in the mistakes, uh, you will learn. You will learn. And that will be a valuable experience.
2: Yeah. But definitely uh, makes sense. OK, so let's let's say, you, you know, you you've gone through the interview, it's, it's gone well and you you hear back remotely and, and it's good news how uh, mm-hmm. you know, they they uh, you know, either offer you a position or invite you back to see it you know, again to effectively offer you a position. Yeah. Uh, and so now you, you've decided to take this position at this department um, and you're deciding to start a new laboratory, essentially, uh, you know, whatever semester you decide to join. You know, I know sometimes it's sort of a, you can go in the, the spring really early, or you can go the next uh, winter. Uh, you usually have that option. Sometimes they're a little bit more flexible, I've heard. But, you know, so now you're you're starting a new laboratory. Um, you know, so how do you decide key focuses and, you know, even small technical things like what what equipment should I buy with startup packages? How do I recruit students? I've never done this before. You know, this this is a whole new mindset from what, what you're used to. Is this a huge shift? And Effectively, how do you, you start making these decisions?
1: Yeah, that is that is the most difficult part. I would say that, uh, you know, the, the game starts there. You yeah. know, the game really starts there because, you know, uh, look, you have a new lab. It's not established. You have four walls. Um, there is no accomplishment, student. <laughs> You have to start from scratches, you know. Uh, the first mistake that you have to avoid is to look to your advisor. Mm. Never. Now it's time to forget about that. Now you have to create your identity. Mm. You know, how can, uh, for example, for the students, let's be very honest, you know, sometimes, you know, students, uh, you know, sometimes students will be excited to join an assistant professor. Sometimes we'll not because, you know, it's a new lab. There is no equipment there. And so I cannot evaluate how the lab is. I cannot evaluate how the culture is in that lab because the lab is new. I do not have any historical data. There are no previous students I can talk with. I don't know how this person mentors people. And then it's up to you to convince them that, you know, You are a good mentor in the sense that we mentioned before. Something that, you know, really is important is that uh, as a young assistant professor, you have to tell them that if we succeed, and this is not just an advertisement strategy. This is just the truth. If we succeed, we succeed together. And this will be something that will remain on you. When you are the first student in the group, you will always be the student that uh, set the lab, that set the path for our success. And so if we win, we win together. And that is something that, uh, you know, if you think is uh, terrific, you know, is really motivating, it's, it's, it's a challenge because now in that moment you are challenging a student. Let's succeed together. Let's learn together, and then if we win, we will be winners. We will be we will succeed together, and we will receive credit for doing so. And that is that is the story. Obviously, you know you have to have a clear idea about what you want to do. That's why it's your story. If, you're, if the story that you have prepared is important and is relevant, um, you know this will be this will permit. Okay, people. People will understand. Will understand from your passion, from your, you know, from your emphasis that you, that you really believe in that idea. You know, I always, I always, uh, uh, you know, remember what Doctor Peppas, that you know well, told me. You know, that when he started doing a, uh, controlled release, at the beginnings so he was sat down, but he believed in that. Mm. and he succeeded. So that is a very interesting story. I always, I always pick him as an example when I talk with incoming students, because an important thing is that you have to have uh, also the braveness, you have to be brave, you know, and I believe that this idea is important. And I believe that, you know, we can succeed this, with this because this is important. This will make an important contribution to the field. Obviously, you know, when you start, you don't have to believe that things will, will come to fruition in one day or in one week because you are not established. You don't have a lab. You don't have facilities. So things will come to fruition, uh, let's say, in one year. In one year, that will take a little a little while. Mm. And there is nothing bad with that. couple of years, nothing bad with that. Three years, nothing bad with that. Because, as we mentioned before, the way I succeed is different from the way you succeed. It can be one year, it can be three years. What you have to look at is the value, the scholarly value of what you are doing and the educational opportunities that you are giving to students. Then, if it takes one year or two years, is that really important? Well, well, maybe not. Maybe not. Obviously, you know, um, at the beginnings, uh, you cannot pretend that your lab will be equipped as, uh, you know, the lab of your, you know, former advisor. So you have to, you know, select eventually, manage the money, and there are some interesting stories in the academia about our assistant professors are very picky (laughs) on that um you know because every dollar matters every um, dollar. matters you know um start with what is necessary because you have in mind an idea this is what i will do first and i will succeed in this because i believe in this i know that this idea is winning and you know i believe it. i believe in this and so i will invest eventually in buying few facilities that can help me go in that direction. Obviously, then you can rely, and this is something that many people don't know, on shared equipment in the department or within the college, within the university. That is very valuable. That typically happens with NMR, you know, this kind of technologies, NMR, GPC sometimes, you know, solid state NMR, which is very fancy, very fancy technique, um, or uh, microscopy. You you don't really need a microscope in your lab because that will cost $1 million just the microscope. And I don't think you can get it. So you have to rely on shared facilities. Uh, Something that you should do is also have a a faculty mentor because Mm -hmm. you will mentor students, but you also are a fresh professor. You also need a mentor. So basically, most of the departments will offer this. And so you need just to, to make sure... That you have uh, a a person, a confidant in the department, a person um, with which you share your problems, your your success, your frustration. Why not when uh, the moment comes? Um, so that uh, you know when the moment to put on the tenure package arrives, that person can advocate for you, because he or she will know your story. Again, it's always a matter of your story. He will know, she will know what happened to you, your success, your you know, also the frustration. How much efforts did you put in this? How much efforts you put to you put on that to succeed, how much commitment you put on that, and how much you improved since the beginnings. And he or she will advocate for you when you know. The moment arrives for you to, you know, submit the tenure package. Hmm. That is something that you want to do from the beginning. Find a good mentor that can help you from your department, a senior faculty that can uh, uh, that can help you out.
2: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. You you bring up the idea of having advocates too for for your vision. Like you're saying, it's about your story and having a vision, and you you convince. You know, students to join based on a shared vision. Essentially, yeah. you show this conviction and this belief in yourself, and then eventually you need to have people believe in you too. And, and exactly, believe in you and their
1: advocates. And it, it seems like that's part of this whole.
2: Yes, especially
1: action. because you know, yes, because they hired you, and if they are you, they they believe in you. Ooh. You know, uh, they will. They will not. They will not. Uh, uh, create too much stress on you mm. because also you know for the typical difficult topic you know when we the difficult topic is the grants you know getting the grants you know funded that is clearly the most uh, the most difficult part especially for young faculty you know um, they will know they will know that the people are different. You know, depending on what you do, depending on your project, depending on the topic. You may take one year, you may take three years, you may take four years, you may take five years to get funding. And there is nothing, nothing wrong with that. You know, because you know what is important is the human capital. Mm. If you're doing a good job, and your project is important, does not matter. If it is funded in one year or in three years. What really matters is that you put all of the efforts to put together the most competitive proposal. And for that, uh, you know, if you had a good mentor, that would be a little bit easier because, you know, a good mentor will teach you for the life and not just for, you know, for, for to succeed one time. To yes. succeed once. It will teach you for you know to be successful for the entire life. Yeah. And you know, your your colleagues will be very collegial on that. Your your dean, your department chair, they will be very collegial on that. They will chair for you. They will advocate for you because they we will believe that we, they will believe that you that you succeed. Obviously you have to get the job done, you have to put the efforts, obviously. No effort means no success. You have to, you know, to get the lab running, you have to get your proposals submitted, the best possible proposals, you have to get your manuscripts submitted, you have to teach your class uh, in a way that, uh, you know, students are happy Mm -hmm. uh, trying to be the most uh, correct and the most collegial person with the colleagues and with the students. Uh, you know, and then, and then, uh, you know, things will, will come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh,
2: a very uh, intense career, but very exciting. So it sounds like we could talk about this for, for many, many hours, more than more than one podcast. So (laughs) uh, I guess I'll, I'll say, uh, do you have any, you know, additional advice for, for the younger students, you know, who are in, in PhD, maybe even undergrads who are, are pursuing research and are now becoming interested in these kinds of careers and you know, maybe at a high level what they should be thinking about or what they should be
1: interested in? Yes, uh, just, you know, first thing first, persevere, hmm. persevere. Uh, because people, everybody gets set down at a certain point. I was, I got at a certain point of my career, it was set down. But I persevered, uh, and uh, things will come. So just rule number one, suggestion number one, you know, and this is a very friendly, very friendly uh, advice. Persevere, persevere. Number two, look onwards in uh, complementary areas. If you are interested in polymers, as we are, look to other areas. Uh look to other areas because there you will find the responses to your answers and you will find good collaborators so that you can put together a good team and get the job done. Uh, so read, read a lot um, in your field and, um, you know, in fields that are at the barber, chemistry, biology, these kind of things. Um, helpful um, and uh, believe if you if you have if you are convinced that your idea is good if you believe that your project is worth of support and is worth you know of uh, investigation just go ahead if uh, you know there will be people that uh, will set you down you cannot do that uh, this is impossible. You are what you are saying is just impossible. Well, you uh, mm-hmm. smile them, uh, shake the hands, and walk away, <laughs> and continue doing your you know persevere mm-hmm. because you know that uh, that will uh, that uh, you know things will will come to fruition. You know you think about Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus was set down. You know, he wanted to navigate to west to reach out to the east. And he was told, and you can look, you know, uh, the king of Portugal told him, you are just a stupid person because what you say is not possible. Uh, You are a charlatan, and uh, you will never be able to make it. And eventually made it, and uh, that man brought us out of the Middle Age. Probably brought us where we are now, <laughs> especially the two of us. Rahul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, and he was set down. So you should never, you know, a student that is willing to pursue this career should never feel depressed if. Uh, you know, there is something that is not going in the direction you want. Uh, there is a failure. There is, uh, you know, things don't go as I wish. Persevere. Persevere. Because if you are not the first supporter of yourself, who can be? Mm-hmm. If uh, when you put together a story, you are not the first person believing in that story, who can believe you? So, just uh, just that persevere, be, be constant, pursue you know set goals, set goals that are very practical, few goals but very well supported and very well motivated with the fundamental science, not with the qualitative and vague statements, but supported with fundamental science, supported on facts because it's just with the fundamental science that you can educate people. Um, and uh, and read read the literature, read the literature, you know, in your area and other areas. Attend meetings, but again, you attend meetings as a student if you have a good mentor, right? Because a good mentor will let you attend meetings and conferences. Will let you present, you know, the your research will put you on the stage. And, uh, you know, with a good mentor, if you have a good mentor, eh, if you are in the, uh, with the right person, with the right mentor, and you have a solid ideas, eh, few ideas, but solid, and you are, um, rigid, but also flexible enough as the bamboo, uh that will uh, that will set the way for you to succeed and to move from uh, you know being a student to being a postdoc to being a faculty yeah
2: yeah i think that's that's really great advice um you know it's funny i feel like you know obviously you were a postdoc when i was a first year here uh i don't know if we ever had this exact conversation but i feel like you impressed them with the same you know insight on me when i was a young student so it's it's nice to sort of hear it uh spoken very, very directly. So it's, yes. it's, it's cool to hear that as sort of the, the last piece of advice for, for the younger students.
1: Yes, yes. You know, it's, it's, it's this. I think uh, the real conclusion is that mentorship matters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with, with good mentors. You know, remember Alexander the Great? You know, he was used to, to say, I, I am indebted for my parents because they brought me to the life. But I am even more indebted, you know, with uh, my teachers because with them my life is much better. Without good mentors, how miserable our life would be! Without having the great mentors, how bad the life would be! Absolutely,
2: yeah, yeah, definitely a, a fun topic that we could keep talking about for hours. So I guess we can we can close with a brief little bit of dessert, like you like to mention about. I think a topic that's uh, near and dear to your heart, uh, the OSN, OSRO uh, field. And I'll, I'll have you, you know, give a little bit of a lay description of organic solvent separations and what OSN, and OSRO really mean. Uh,
1: yep. I'll, I'll let you go, you know, for that, since you're you know, the expert. Yeah, with pleasure, with pleasure. You know, is a, these are new emerging um, membrane applications at the early stages of their development, but with the, uh, you know the potential for a huge impact. Um, basically, the organic solvent nano filtration, OSN, called commonly, is a nano filtration process applied to organic solutions. So basically, you can remove solutes, you know, bulky solutes from the organic solutions in which. These solutes were synthesized eventually. Normally, you know, this kind of separation works for solute that, um, you know, whose molecular weight is in the size between a 200 and a 1,200 uh, Dalton. Yeah, that, is, that is basically the range of molecular weights in which OSN works. Basically, these big molecules, these big solutes are rejected by the membrane in general, but with some surprises. Uh, They are rejected, the solvent passes, the solvent is a much much smaller molecule, will pass through the membrane and will be collected in the permeate. So basically this is a way to recover the solute and recover and regenerate and recycle and reuse the solvent. So what the solute can be? Can be an oligomer, for example oligomer, can be a protein from the fermentation growth, uh, can be a pigment, can be a colorant, you know, can be, can be, you know, can be anything in, in the petrochemical area as well as in the biomedical area. And there, you know, having a membrane, doing this separation would be very, uh, very promising because you can avoid the distillation. Mm. And especially if you avoid, if, if you have biological molecules, you cannot distillate because, you know, proteins get denaturated, you know, you cannot distillate. And so having a good membrane would, would help. So OSN is an infiltration process in which a big solute is separated from a smaller solvent molecule, relying essentially on the sides, uh, seeding effect, but Please take this with a grain with a grain of salt because uh, we have a lot of surprises. Sometimes we have a so-called negative, you know, inverse, inverse rejection, where you know the solute preferentially moves. And this will right. open, you know, a very interesting conversation. Absolutely. whether or not this process is regulated by diffusion or sorption, right. yeah. Or sorption. <laughs> and here, you know, there will be many things, you know, many interesting things to report, especially from the recent literature. The other organic solvent reverse osmosis is a much more challenging, mm. is a much more challenging separation because there you want to separate two solvent, two organic solvents, basically having very like sides, very similar sides. So you have like... A, Xylene isomers, xylene isomers, or, you know, isomers in general, very similar in, uh, you know, um, critical properties, sides, and basically there, designing the membrane is really a a huge challenge, because you really need, I mean, there, there, Uh, controlling, especially if you want to separate isomers. Controlling the solubility among isomers can be a little bit challenging. You can, but it's a little bit challenging. You may want to tailor eventually the structure, the free volume architecture of these polymers to allow molecules having very similar sides, very similar shape, eventually to be separated. And basically, OZERO is at the very, very, very beginnings. You know, is really an emerging process. You know, OSN has some very niche application, for example, in the um, waxing of uh, lubricant oils. These kind of applications. There, the main, uh, the main challenging, obviously, is designing the materials because you know polymers will dissolve in organic solvents. Right. You know, a polymer that can withstand organic solvents without dissolving, but this is, not, this is not enough. Even though a polymer survives, does not dissolve, it will swell. And mm-hmm. if the polymer swells, it will, this will prejudice somehow the selectivity. So the selectivity is going not to be that good. And so, you know, designing the polymer is, is the most challenging part. But in my opinion, and, you know, many colleagues, um, you know, uh, share with me this view, um, the most, probably the most uh, urgent problem there is really understanding these uh, processes at a very fundamental level. How small molecules, how solvent molecules, how solute molecules transport in these materials. Uh, You know there is a huge debate in the literature: is um, solution diffusion, is uh, um, pore flow, is the first, is the second, is a combination Mm -hmm. of the two. Where is the truth? And basically, this is um, this is uh, really giving us uh, occasions to have fun. You know, (laughs) some interesting research there, and you know, ourselves, our students are having a lot of fun trying to. You know, understand this, understand a little bit of fundamentals, because if you not, if you do not understand the way molecules transport in this, uh, uh, you know, this kind of membranes, it is obviously challenging to design the perfect membrane that can, you know, right. work, work well. So it is an area where there is, uh, is an area in huge demand, huge demand, especially in fundamental, fundamental aspects. Right, and the transport aspects.
2: Yeah, that's. Uh, it seems like it could have a very important industrial impact in, in many different, effectively, chemical and manufacturing processes. And there's well, I agree. Fundamental challenges, clearly.
1: <laughs> I agree because you know more. Uh, I think. Uh, I think that should be pretty much seventy percent. Seventy percent of the chemical synthesis, and then talking in general. Chemical synthesis in general occur in organic solution. Yeah. So, which means that you really need to recover the solute. Mm-hmm. You know, recover the solute. Yeah. Recover the solvent. So that is uh, that is uh, you know we do this we do this by distillation. But this poses a major thread, you know, on uh, on the mankind for the amount of energy that these processes uh, require. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's, why, that's why it is important. that's why you know for example, that's why I got interested in this, uh, when I was uh, you know identifying a, you know a, a good topic for me to work as an independent researcher. That's why we jumped into this. Because we saw that there was a lot of room and you know when you see that there is a room in a certain area, you want to ask yourself, how can I contribute with my knowledge there? What can I
2: do? Yeah, and I guess that's a good way to, to transition. You you had published a paper in Journal Membrane Science. It looks like about two years ago, twenty twenty. Uh, yeah, on uh, you know nonlinearity of, of flux and OSN processes. So you know, I think that rep, the paper is very nice. I, I read it you know a little bit earlier, and it was cool to see. Um, You know how nice the work was, and it seems like it summarizes a lot of this. Uh, So you know maybe we can talk you know really briefly about uh, you know what observations you and your student uh, I think Kelly saw yes yeah Yeah. and uh, you know what you were you're going out trying to to prove to the literature and help them
1: essentially. Yeah, no. This is uh, this is indeed uh, you know a very good, good question for who, you know that we have here we could talk for uh, for hours. Of course, you know, yes. Uh, you know it's basically the what has been observed since a while is that uh, in these membranes for organic solvent separations uh, that are normally made by dense polymers, you know, solvent flux when reported as a function of delta p, you know, is non-linear. But, uh, you know, it's a little bit linear at the beginnings, at the low pressures, and then it levels off. And eventually, uh, if you can reach a very high pressure with your cross-flow device or your the end device, you will see that the flux basically becomes constant. It reaches a plateau. So you pressurize the membrane more, you provide more driving force, but you don't get flux. Mm-hmm. Basically, there is a... A ceiling in the productivity of the membrane. Why is that? Yeah, why is that? And so people have, uh, you know, addressed this question, saying, "Is membrane compaction? When the membrane gets compacted, you know, uh, the resistance to mass transfer becomes higher. So it becomes uh, harder for small molecules to get through, and so flux uh, will decline." At that point, you know, um, I am. I love, as I told at the beginnings, fundamental science. I love quantitative statements. Okay, this is a very qualitative statement. The membrane gets compacted. Do we have a proof of this? Now, look. Let's take a polybenzimidazole, a, a polymer we are very familiar with. Measure the elastic modulus, Young's modulus, five giga giga Pascal. Then soak the polymer in methanol, and you know, another paper from our group demonstrated that methanol really plasticizes a lot, PBIs. So measure the elastic modulus of the methanol plasticized PBI. 3 giga, 3 gigapascal. So we are still, it decreased because the polymer became a little bit softener, but it's still 3 gigapascal. So how can that be possible? That a polymer with an elastic modulus of three, four, five gigapascal gets compacted at five atmospheres. I don't believe this. I don't believe this. I can be wrong, but it uh, does not sound a very, you know, convincing argument. And so basically, you know, this is very quali- very quantitative. You know, we have the elastic modulus is very high. It cannot be. And so uh, basically, we we rediscovered, a, a, you know, all the theory that Don Paul had published in 1971, 72, 1973. He got the Dolittle Awards, and then the dark, and then that theory was forgotten. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you know, at that time, OSN Osro were completely out on the topic and, uh, you know, I could tell interesting stories that Don told me about that, but fortunately we don't have time. Uh, Then he moved to something else uh, because that time, you know, was not mature enough to talk about uh, organic separations. And basically we proposed a framework, quantitative framework, mathematical framework, you know, that may be, may be wrong, may be wrong, but at least it's more quantitative. That uh, um, basically the origin of this flux decline with the delta P is merely thermodynamic. Basically, you know, what happens is that when you pressurize the membrane, Uh, the solvent concentration in the upstream phase of the membrane does not change, but the concentration in the downstream membrane phase does change and decreases. And the more you pressurize, the more it decreases until reaching zero. And then if you pressurize more, it cannot fall below zero because concentrations cannot be negative, which means that the driving force, if you think about the Fick's law, the driving force for solvent transport will reach a Maximum level as long as you pressurize. If you pressurize more, you will not be creating additional driving force. Mm-hmm. And so the flux has to reach a plateau. That's why flux, solvent flux declines mm-hmm. with delta P. It's a thermodynamic, probably. Okay. But you could argue flux could decline because, uh, yes, um, uh, you know, maybe the diffusion coefficient is declining you know, in the fixed law, the diffusion coefficient is decreasing. And we we were very well aware of this, and we calculated this diffusion coefficient. However, to do so, uh, you have to know the solution diffusion model properly. You have to know that uh, in uh, uh, organic solvent and nanofiltration or reverse osmosis membrane, the way we write the solution diffusion model is not the same way we write it for gas separation membranes. We have to take into account uh, the non-idealities, thermodynamic effects, the effect of the frame of reference. You know, we are really talking about the ABC of uh, diffusion. And basically, in this way, you can get the diffusivity uh, of ethanol in uh, PTMSP. We took that system as, uh, you know, uh, example. It actually increases with the dash p Yeah. Which is, by the way, you know, a result that... Uh, Somehow also done got a while ago with wrappery materials. So cannot be the diffusion coefficient. The sole reason why flux declines is probably because the driving force is reaching a, you know, maximum. But this has implication. This implies that the transport is a solution diffusion is not port flow. Because if the membrane gets compacted, this means that there are pores that are squeezed. And so, is poor flow, but uh, we use normally for these uh, kind of experiments dense membranes. Right. Uh, uh, so not like uh, porous membranes. So the fact that if properly formulated, the solution diffusion model works, this I think provides uh, at least uh, you know an argument. I would say an argument to say that probably the solution diffusion model should be considered as a. a an opportunity as a possibility, and that probably you know the reason of flux decline is not the compaction, or, but is you know is nearly thermodynamic. In rubbery polymers might be different. You know, PDMS cross-linked PDMS may may compact because it's soft, hmm. but the PDI, glass but the glass, glassy polymers like a spiral, you know, glassy polymers with a spiral centers or fused aromatic rings, well, they tend to be pretty rigid. And, you know, the argument of compaction does not really, mm. does not really look that, uh, that convincing. Now, what's the implication, the practical implication of this? Because we are engineers, and obviously we have to come up with uh, solutions and uh, how that relates to membrane material design. Why is that important? How that relates to membrane material design? It relates, and it relates very strongly, very badly. And let me come up with an example. Let's consider, I challenge you, Rahul, and say, let's design a polymer that exhibits a linear flux with delta P. Well, if the origin of this phenomenon is thermodynamic, we will never be able to design that polymer. Because, uh, you know, you cannot violate thermodynamics. Yeah. You know, we, can, uh, we can violate sometimes other rules, but thermodynamic is the rule that cannot uh, be violated. Never, to, never, never. I have to change the penetrant to make that one work, probably. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So basically, basically that, uh, that is a major implication. That probably if we try to design a polymer, a dense, a dense polymer, where flux is linear, probably we we could not succeed, provided that you know the theory is true. If we design a um, porous polymer, obviously you know it will be pore flow. Probably we will have compaction if the polymer is rigid enough, and we can eliminate the compaction. Probably we can get a linear trend. Mm. Obviously, you know the. Extent of this nonlinearity depends, as you may know, from the uh, molar volume of the penetrance. So, if the molar volume of the penetrant you know that enters into the equation, into the transport equation, if the molar volume is very big, this effect should be you yeah. know, more pronounced. You know, if you are working with the Say normal eptane, normal eptane, a huge molecule. these effects should be more pronounced than with methanol or right. water. You know.
2: Yeah, but- and that's one of the beautiful examples. If you look at the old data uh, with with water and RO membranes, yep, aqueous systems. You, I, as far as I'm aware, you don't see most of these non-linearities because it's it's just so much smaller. The part, yeah. the molar volume of water is I think 18.
1: Yeah. And you have to go very, you know, you have to go very high. Pressure. Yeah. But uh, if you consider, you know, a very heavy organic solvent, you can start uh, observing, uh, you know, the, the effect, uh, the flux decline with delta P at five atmospheres, five, six atmospheres between five and ten. You will see something. You will see that it starts leveling off, which, uh, you know, which uh, in my opinion, you know, means something. You know, yes,
2: uh, yeah. I I think it's really remarkable that you know the the work and that you know Don Paul did and now that you've sort of extended a little bit forward for, for glassy polymers, it's uh it's really explaining the the mechanism of transport to the material. Uh, yeah. and saying that if you if you formulate the solution diffusion mechanism correctly with the right math framework. That it's all—all all the data is consistent with us. It's it's it the right mechanism, and you—you know—the the idea of a ceiling flux can be explained by, by this mechanism. It's thermodynamic in origin. Yeah. Other other types of phenomena are also explained by this mechanism. You mentioned a little bit about uh you know negative rejection or you know things yes, like these uh, yes. these odd results. This
1: mechanism essentially it's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, indeed, Rahul, something that I want to say, you know, this is something that we were discussing with a, a very good friend of mine that we, you know, when we, we speak together, we stay there for hours and hours. Uh, is uh, Ryan Lively. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we love to talk about this because we really share a lot of ideas on this. Is that, uh, you know, these, uh, these, uh, this research uh, that we are doing, uh, you know, or these models, but also the experimental data, indicate that uh, you know, in contrast with what we were thinking a few years ago, probably sorption has uh, a role that is much more important than we believed. Because you know, how can you explain that uh, a bigger solute preferentially permeates yeah. than the solvent? Just because yes, its diffusivity is much lower. But its solubility is much larger and it overwhelms, you know, the side sealing effect. This is the sole, this is the sole um, but also in Osro, in Osro, you know, what we, what we observed is that uh, for our model, the trend of permeability with delta P is decreasing. The trend of diffusivity with delta P is increasing. The delta of the, the, the trend of solubility with the P is decreasing as permeability, which looks, you know, which indicates that permeability is absorption controlled. And indeed, recently, uh, Ryan Lively, Professor Lively, came up with an excellent uh, paper um, that clearly demonstrated that if you can predict sorption, then you can predict, you know, flux and permeability. Yeah. Which means that uh, you know, convert that this research is really you know um, producing some some ideas about how these processes work because we need the materials opposite, but we need to understand. We need also to understand. How the processes work. Yeah. This is very well established in gas separation, um, but uh, you know this is now moving the first step forwards in organic separations.
2: Yeah, I mean, so one thing I I thought was pretty remarkable about the work, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on the numbers, but it looked like the liquid ethanol uptake in the PTMSP was like about 80 percent by weight. It was like 0.8 grams of ethanol per gram of polymer.
1: Uh, probably, probably a little bit smaller. I think smaller, a little yeah. bit smaller, but it was substantial. You know, it was substantial. You no,
2: know, I, I mean, you see, know. that's the thing. You have to account for these, uh, you know, convective effects, thermodynamic nialities. At this, you know, is enough, you
1: know, absorption. It's a little bit of a yeah, uh, yeah. Let's let's say let's say you know let's say Rahul whole story. If you have a, you know a gas in a polymer, CO two. How much CO2 a polymer will take up in terms of mass fraction? 1%, right. 1% and thus to be very good, very highly solving polymer. Generally is much lower than 1%, much, much lower. Um, now how much solvent, a liquid solvent, a membrane can uptake? We have seen, uh, 30%, we have seen 50%, we have seen a little bit more than 50%. And I won't intentionally exclude from this conversation because here really the topic will become, you know, very, very interesting, even more interesting. Hydrogels, yeah. that can take 150%, you know, or even more, you know, think about the materials, for the drug delivery, diapers, uh sorbents, mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Iron exchange membranes, yeah. Iron <laughs> exchange membranes <laughs> for water, water purification, energy generation. So, uh, what are we talking about? Are we talking about situations where the convective effects may be excluded? Um let's be honest. You know, we are chemical engineers and we are, you know, we we are experts in transport, we are experts in germ. Cannot say that you know we cannot say this. Yes. You know we have to we have to formulate uh, these models properly, and that's why you know why do we have as engineers an eye open to the application? Our approach should always stick on the fundamentals because that will help first to educate the students, uh, to provide you know very valuable educational opportunities, and as a byproduct of this. We will eventually come up with a paper. We will come up with something that can help, you know, um, can help us understand a little bit better. How can we design these processes? Right. How can we design these languages in a more predictive way? In a more predictive way so that we can really, um, you know, design something with the properties that somehow we expect, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's, it's nice to see, uh, you know, you're, you're teaching the students how to think critically about the assumptions that are made when people have applied these frameworks uh, to different problems, whether that's gas transport where they don't you know, take up that much penetrant or even in uh, some RO membranes, they don't take up that much water and it may be okay. But then you look at some of Don Paul's old work where he's gone back and forth with people looking at hydrogels. And he's like, no, you you have to account for convection, otherwise you get nonsensical diffusivities, right? So
1: You can get, uh, you can arrive to the famous point that, you know, many times came up that the mutual diffusivity will exceed the self-diffusion coefficient, the, the mutual diffusivity of the penetrant in the polymer, in the hydrogen, exceeds The penetrant self diffusivity, which is the diffusivity uh, related to Brownian Mm -hmm. diffusion, say Brownian motion, uh, random walk uh, of the penetrant in the penetrant, the penetrant bulk, um, which is clearly impossible. You know, Uh, it's it's uh, clearly you know that was the that was the lamp that uh, turned on in nineteen sixty nine. And that led Don uh, arrived uh, arrive to formulate that theory back in 1969, 68. You know, we were we were in that moment. And you know that uh, that uh, you know see see he did that. He while doing this, he educated students and. Uh, And he won, you know, published influential papers, won the D'Oleto Award. Uh, You know, what is very curious, uh, you know, is is a very funny story. The very first student that Don got uh, is uh, Carl Locke. And Carl Locke was our director here in my department for uh, several years uh, up to the end of the 80s. And um, he produced people. Yeah. He produced the valuable people and accidentally he produced the uh, scholarly publications, and won the awards and, you know, uh, arrived to be member of the National Academy. But I think the most important accomplishment for Don, uh, that I want to you know, take advantage of this, to say hi to him, if he will uh, listen to. Um, the most important accomplishment is that he has educated a generation of uh, people, generation of people that now are in the industry, in the academia, in the consulting. You know, we have them in our advisory board, in my department. We have these people everywhere. And every time I talk with one of uh, these uh, family members, we always arrive to the same point uh, that, uh, you know, his mentorship was incredible. And so what is important in the academia? What is important? What is the important point is the people, is the human capital, is the, that you mentor, you mentor people. And probably you can start understanding that you are going in the right direction. Believe miracle when you will see your student receiving a recognition. And that is the moment when you recognize, okay, maybe we have to continue on this pathway. Maybe we have to, to continue on this way. It's the pleasure, the pleasure that, uh, you know, the, that gives you the possibility of seeing your student succeeding. It's incredible. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's incredible there is nothing else that can you know pay you off more than this there is no career award there is no recognition there is nothing that can pay you off more than this is the people
2: yeah absolutely i think that's probably the the best way to close is you know remembering uh, the mentorship don paul gave to you and you know recommending yeah. everyone who's listening to, to read those papers they're amazing uh, and it's yes. it's really nice to see that you know you've become a professor and you're mentoring your students in the same way and, and writing papers in the same way. So it's, that's all, uh, you know, really beautiful. So yeah, it was, it was a pleasure having you here. Thank you for for joining uh, the podcast today. It was a- always excellent to talk to you.
1: Well, thank you, Rahul. You know, it was just uh, my, my pleasure. And uh, now I hope, you know, I am really looking forward to see you to, your next step, and uh, you know, I would be, I would be happy to attend your your next success.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll let you know as soon as I have one. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you.